Greetings, everyone. I'm excited to welcome Jason Cyberson, CEO and founder at Sports Physio. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. Great to have you here. Let's dive right in. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so I have an unconventional background uh, for many cybersecurity era software founders. I grew up uh, fairly poor in rural Maine, pulls my socks, food stamps. Uh, we were homeless for a summer, living in someone's pop-up camper, um, highly motivated to get out of that life and region. I got an undergrad in computer engineering and a uh, master's in electrical. Worked at a big defense company in electronic warfare. Started hacking the company network and reporting to the IT guys. Got a reputation as like the hacker guy, which led to me starting a cyber warfare group with an older gentleman inside of Lockheed Martin, which was then BAE. Got recruited to go to DARPA. Ran a $100 million portfolio of classified programs down in DC, which led to me starting my own company, C Technologies, which was a cybersecurity company. Sold that in 2016, had an HHA exit and retired, donated most of it to a charitable foundation. My wife and I are Christians and really felt strongly about giving back. We we're foster parents and adopted, and she started a group fighting human trafficking. And uh, yeah, moved into investing, took over 10X Venture Partners, which is an angel group, started a small venture fund, and have been investing full-time since 2019. A couple of years ago, got the idea to start a new company using AI and computer vision for sports, starting with basketballs and to see if we can use AI to automatically create stats and highlights and, and do some other cool things instead of that people do today manually. So I put a half million of my retirement in. I recruited a team of friends and, and people uh, that were known through my network and raised, I put a half million in. We've raised 600,000 in angel investments in 2021. We did a two and a half million dollar venture round in 2022. And we just closed a $3 million round with Sapphire Ventures last month. Okay, and I appreciate you sharing that background. And so we'll talk about what Sports Physio does, but did you have, say, a passion for sports or just like sports or just saw an opportunity there to start Sports Physio? Yeah, I've been playing basketball casually just for the last 30 years or so, men's leagues and pickup and things like that. My kids, I now have six children. They all play basketball. Uh, and soccer. I've coached them for probably over 15 years in basketball um, from a number of different programs. They play travel and um, competitive high school and other things. My son almost played in college. Um, and uh, yeah, so just know the sport well, which is what kind of gave me the opportunity, the idea. I drive a Tesla, which is you know self-driving car. So having this car that can drive at 70 miles an hour on the highway and navigate in real time like people wearing bright colored jerseys with big numbers on their backs, throwing a big orange ball in a hoop, like shouldn't be that hard to figure out what's happening. So yeah, called some PhD friends from when I was at DARPA and they were like, yeah, you could totally build this. And, and I looked at the market, I called some customers and said, would you pay for this? And they all would pay 50 to hundred percent more than I was going to charge. So then I kind of sat down in Excel and sketched out how big the market was and basketball alone, I'm projecting at a one to one and a half billion dollar market. And then you add in soccer and lacrosse and baseball and hockey. It's, you know, 10 to $20 billion opportunity. It's not cybersecurity like my background. That's, you know, 500 million, billion or trillion dollars or something, depending on what numbers you like. But it's still large enough to be a venture scale business that can pay a really healthy return. And the competition is incredibly limited. There's virtually no one doing what we're doing. Everybody does it manually. So there's, and they're much more expensive because they're paying people overseas to kind of type into a keyboard. So by doing it with automation, we can really bring the cost down and, and add a bunch of cool new features that don't exist today. Yeah, I love that background. And yeah, so tell us a little bit about, uh, we have a little background about Sports Physio, but tell us, give us a little use case. So if I sign up for Sports Physio and 
I don't know, am I a basketball coach? Am I a player? Give us a little use case on how people use the product. Yeah. So we're, you know, we're a cloud software company. So we, you know, take video. You can use our client app. You can use your own camera. You can use a, a Sony. You can use a Pixelot or a Veo or whatever third-party device. Basically, you just got to record the game, upload it to our cloud, and then our AI will process the video and figure out all the points, rebounds, steals, assists, turnovers for the players by number. And then you get that data on an app on your phone. So we sell to programs and teams. We will, if someone really pushes us, sell to an individual. But because for us, the cost is the same to do it for the entire team or the entire league as it is for one parent, we, we really don't want a single parent to have to bear that cost because, you know, it's 20, 25, 30 bucks a game, depending on what you're doing probably. And for that kind of a cost per person, again, some parents will pay that, but we'd rather have the whole team sign up. And then it's like $2 a game, right? Which that number becomes very compelling, even if you don't really care much about it. Maybe your kid does. And for two bucks, like, why would you bat an eye? So we really try to sell to the to the men's league, to the AU club. Um, we will do colleges and high schools. But again, men's leagues and AU programs, they have dozens of teams that play year round. So for us, it's much more economical to put our energy into selling to those types of customers than like a single small high school might have two two teams. Mm-hmm. You know, if they want it, then come to us. We'll, we'll happily support them. But we're not doing a lot of like outbound sales because you, it's more complicated sales process. And then you're getting two teams to play one season. As opposed to men's league, they might have 50 teams to play year round, right? That's yes. much better return on investment for us. Yeah. And so here, right? So you you go out and try to get that league and all the teams in it versus trying to hit up just teams individually. So easier right. go to market motion to hit those leagues. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. People ask me, what's the biggest thing I learned as an investor that I bring back as a founder? Mm-hmm. And I tell them it's six letters, you know, CAC and LTV. Like every business can be summed up in that. Like, I don't care what your product is or how bad it is. You can get customers. It's a matter of how much customer acquisition cost is to acquire that customer. I could sell poop on a stick and it might cost me $3,000 to convince one person to buy it for a dollar, but you can do it. You get that dollar in, but then the lifetime value is, well, how much am I going to make from that one sale? So we really think about a lot of companies, particularly in the sports tech world, have failed because they go after the consumer and they're like, I built an app and I'm just going to get parents and coaches to download it and they're going to pay me $50 a month for two years. Like, no, they're not. Like very few people are going to do that. It costs a lot to acquire a customer and they don't usually make that money back. That's why in cybersecurity, everybody tries to sell to enterprise Fortune 500 customers because you lay in one of those accounts and, you know, it's $5 million in revenue. So you can spend a lot of time trying to land a deal because the upside is so high. Okay. Appreciate that insight. So LTV to CAC, really important. And then how many sports are you covering right now? We just, just basketball, we launched the basketball okay. product goal and we have uh, four sports that we're kind of analyzing right now and, and planning to launch in uh, 2024. So not all four, but we're prioritizing mm-hmm. one. Uh, we have a lot of requests for soccer, for volleyball, and and then we're also looking at baseball and, and hockey as well. So those are kind of the top ones. Tennis would be a really fun one, but there's a great product called Swing Vision uh, that's out there that we really admire. I'm like, if I was building a product, it would probably look a lot like that. So I'm not sure I want to go after that market. And then so- uh, football and lacrosse are super interesting, but very technically challenging. You know, you're outdoors, you got weather, uh, high degree of occlusion, nighttime, so probably not the first sport I want to take on next, given the demand we have, but, but something we can, we can tackle down the road. 
Okay. And do you ever, so it sounds like you can accept video from different ways from an iPhone or different cameras, any, any hardware play down the road or just rely on, on the end? We don't really want to be in the hardware business. In mm-hmm. fact, fire, they said that was part of their attraction for investing in us is mm-hmm. we're a true SaaS business. You know, it's really just software as a service. We're hardware agnostic. We'll support whatever hardware is out there. We'll probably have some partnerships with other people's devices. So if a customer comes off like, well, I don't have anything, what should I use? You know, they can use our app and put it on a, on a tripod on our phone. We'll mail them that. Or we might point them to someone if they like own their own gym, they want to mount something in the facility, be like, hey, here are three that we recommend that are, that are great partnerships. And so we may work out some kind of a deal and partnership with those companies to just try to support our customers with that. But, but we're not going to get into the hardware manufacturing business. It's kind of not who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Stay out of that game. And then you mentioned, so you're, you started a couple of years ago. What year did you found Sports Physio? Uh, 2021. 2021. Okay. And, and do you have a, a physical headquarters location or are you all remote? Yeah, we're all remote currently. We are looking at, most of us are in the Boston area and then we have developers all over the place. And so we are looking at maybe doing an office next year because we do have enough critical mass and it's starting to make sense. But you know, I'm pretty mm-hmm. frugal as would be logical for someone who grew up with my economic background and trying to stretch a dollar as far as I can. So trying to stall those fixed costs until we really need to take them on and, and preferably have some revenue. So I'd love to be, you know, doing millions in revenue before we start to take on, you know, fixed infrastructure costs. But, but it's something we're talking about because there was a lot of value and, you know, I'm not a fan of the nine to five, Monday to Friday, rigid scheduled all in an office, but I also think there's value in not all being remote all the time. Like we do have, we've done a corporate all hands together or we flew people in and we did, we do monthly management meetings all in person. And then we have individual like lunches and things where we'll try and have people get together. But it would be nice to have an office where two, three days a week, you could kind of have a core of the team getting together. So yeah, we're still exploring that and, and reading some of the data. A lot of companies are trying to figure the same thing out. Yeah, figuring out the, the back to office. And then what's what's your current team size? We're a little north of 25 people. Okay. And then what about how many, you mentioned some founders, co-founders, how many founders in total? Yeah. So it all depends on how you define founder. I learned, you know, you can call people co-founder, they can call themselves co-founders, but like some of the accelerators we applied to were like, oh, they're not a founder or co-founder unless they have 20% equity. I'm like, oh, well, then that changes the equation. But, you know, we started, you know, we have Mike Siebert and, and Brian French were the first two senior guys on board, Mike runs our AI team and Brian runs the software team. And then our COO joined shortly after them, who was the co-founder of my last company with me. And so that's really the three of them are really the co-founding team. But then our CTO, I think has that very much that co-founder mindset. He's founded multiple companies himself. And he and I were talking through the entire journey, even before I started the company, he was that first phone call I made of like, he's a PhD AI guy. You know, he ran a $200 million portfolio programs at DARPA in AI, you know, 18 patents, just a, one of the smartest guys I know. So I definitely treat him like a co-founder. I may even call him that, even though he was, you know, a year or two later than the other guys, but he has that, you know, ownership mentality and, and founder mentality and has been with us kind of through the whole journey. Okay. I appreciate that. So about 25 staff and then anything you want to share around revenue range or ARR AR, AR, AR size right now? Yeah, I mean, we're early, so there's not not anything exciting to share. We're, you know, under 100K. 
Uh, but we just launched, like I said, you know, a few months ago, and we're talking to a number of customers now and, and have pipeline kind of developing. But yeah, it's been fun. We have some semi-pro leagues in, in Florida. We've got Oxford University. We've got a national recruiting technology company using our our services. That's a Mark Cuban portfolio company. So that's kind of fun. And, uh, you know, we have a number of high schools and random other programs in the area. So yeah, it's a nice, nice mix of customers that gave us some glowing recommendations to Sapphire when they were, you know, we were raising the round. And now we're, I uh, literally was just, that's why I was a little late to this call was getting on the phone by gross lead talking about what's our forecast, what's our pipeline, what do we need to hire to kind of build this scale and, and go from hundred K to, you know, a couple of million to revenue over the next couple of years. Well, that's perfect. You know, speaking about revenue, we talked a little bit about your go-to-market motion earlier. So not hitting that B2C, not hitting up, you know, the individual parents, the teams, but going after the sports leagues. So who, what persona do you go after the, the, you know, I'm not too familiar with who runs sports leagues, but the the no. organizer, the GM, who, who are you trying to hit up to get into that sports league? Yeah, typically a middle-aged male, you know, somewhere between 30 and 45. And they're usually a sole decision maker. You know, they, they, they are the decision maker for a men's league and they might run two, three, four nights a week. They'll have, you know, maybe 80 teams across, you know, maybe 10 teams per league. And you've got, you know, 80 is probably high, call it 50 teams across like five nights a week with 10 leagues or sorry, 10 teams. Uh, yeah. 10 teams, five, um, as a typical kind of men's league. But like in Cambridge, they had as many as 150 teams in their league. Other places, it might just be eight teams. You know, we have one customer that has like eight teams in one league. So you have a, a range between those. But yeah, there works a, a person who runs an AU program. So they'll do spring ball, they'll do fall ball. They might run summer leagues, summer teams. And, and then they have coaches maybe for each individual team. But they're the one that run the program and kind of make those decisions. So yeah, that's typically the... The persona we would talk to and engage. And the nice thing is because they're a decision maker, they can, you know, once they see the value proposition and realize the cost and benefits, it's a pretty easy sale. And they get pretty excited when they, I think most people assume it's going to be a lot more expensive than it is. And then when I start telling them the numbers, they're like, what? Really? It's like a dollar or two a game per person? Like, how do I sign up? Where do I do this? So, and it's nice because again, at college, it's like a men's team, a women's team. That's probably it. <laughs> they can pay a little bit more. Then you got to deal with the athletic director, you got the the coaches, you've got the booster club, you've got the whole process to go through and and then you're landing two teams. Like it's it's more visibility, which is nice. So we're certainly gonna support them if they need help. But you know, it's just a different dynamic. In and when they sign up, is this something that you know, with these leagues, are they going to just bake this into say the registration fees or will yeah, they exactly yeah, yeah, so they they'll just bake it in, maybe add a buck or two. Yeah, uh, exactly. and then, it's so cheap per person, it's just kind of easier. That's why some people have been like, Well, can I just buy it myself? I'm like, you can, but again, it's just so expensive for you to do that compared to if everyone just does it, the cost, you know, it's kind of the tragedy that comes problems, right? Like, you know, people take all take advantage of a common good, but you know, if one person had to pay to build the city park and then you have this capability, it's like, well, it's very expensive for one person to do that. But if we all chip in a little bit and then take advantage of it, even if everyone doesn't use the park, but they all pay a little bit in taxes. And so you all get that common benefit that I think that model makes a lot more sense. But again, we're, we're not going to force someone and give them a hard time if they really, really want it. We just want to try to make it attractive for everybody. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then if I recorded everything right, 
As far as capital raised today at around 6 million plus the 500K that you put in, that sound about right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So 6 million raised plus your 500K. And then, so a couple rounds here, whether we call them pre-seed, seed to, to yeah. kind of invest in the company. What did you see or what can you pass on to the founder community uh, that you saw as far as triggers or milestones that said you're ready to raise some capital? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think it really depends on the unique business and, you know, the founder's experience and the market they're in and the market conditions, you know, what it takes to raise capital in today's market is very different than it was just two years ago. And that market was very different than three years before that. So, you know, we're expecting a harder raise process for our Series A than it would be two years ago where they're like, you've got a half million in revenue, like you're good to go. You know, now it's more like two to three million, they're saying. So expectations change. And by the time someone listens to this podcast in a couple of years from now, they could be very different. But, you know, I think the reality is everybody looks for a good team, you know, a clear vision of what you're building, market traction, a product that's compelling and interesting and has a moat to protect it and discriminate against competitors, a large enough market to be venture scale and investable that they can get a return and a team that is positioned to go after that market and capitalize on that opportunity you know, good diligence materials and a data room that is clear and makes that argument well articulated for the customers um, or to the investors. So I think those are kind of common ingredients that transcend any market. Yeah, I appreciate that that insight. And in a product like yours, you know, because it where, say, if you try to bootstrap this, it's just this two, a lot of technical components to this, the engineering part that it would just take forever where exactly. you, you kind of the product you're offering, you need capital to get this out to market. Otherwise, yeah, if you're bootstrapping, it could be yours. Yeah, I, I follow these, you know, people on Twitter and podcasts and newsletters and all that. And I'm like, oh, just build your product and just start selling and blah, blah, blah. I was like, that's great if your product is like a calculator app or some simple thing. You're you're using ChatGPT and just putting a wrapper on it. Like, great. You don't have any capital costs. Like, why do you even need venture capital in the first place? But you're building an AI system that doesn't exist. We can't just download something off the internet or use ChatGPT to like solve our problems for us. Like as much as I would love to do that, we had to build our own front end app for the users. We have to build, you know, the whole back end infrastructure. We have we we've literally let go of more AI PhDs than most people will ever hire. We've had two different AI PhDs, both from MIT, both of whom we had to let go because they were just not moving at the pace of kind of a startup shipping code, we still have two PhDs. I'm like, how many PhDs do we need? Like, we have two really good ones. We have a team. We need really implementers who are, we have four engineers that are implementing stuff on the computer vision side. Plus we have another, you know, eight to 10 people in software development, QA and backend and building our cloud infrastructure and software and, and our front end apps and Angular web pages and all the stuff that we have to develop. So it's a lot of work. Like it's a lot of heavy lifting we're trying to be as lean as we can. Something I've been telling people too is think about, you know, the primary effect of COVID was us realizing all of our interdependencies and the pandemic and the impact that can have. The secondary effect of COVID, everybody realized was like, oh, working from home is a thing. You can be effective and sometimes even more effective. The tertiary effect of COVID, which most people don't realize fully that I've been harping on, is the fact that companies are starting to realize that if I'm paying everyone to work from home, like, I don't care what zip code you sit in. If you speak English and you're in the same time zone, why do I care? I mean, we had a compelling case that stuck in my mind where I had a PhD in computer vision. We hired out of uh, South America for $50,000 a year. 
At the same time, I had a resume from a guy with a master's degree and a three more years experience in Utah for $180,000 a year to do the same job. And you know, like I'm American, obviously I want to support people in America, but I also have traveled extensively and have been to Haiti and other countries. I'm like, I don't think people should be discriminated against because they're in another country. If they can do the job and they have a very low cost of living there and they're excited to work for you as a company, my job is to do the best I can for my shareholders to get them good return on the money that they're giving us to try to build this great product. So I'm going to hire the guy who's making 50K a year to do the same work, right? If they speak English and, and he's in the same time zone or one off for me and the guy in Utah is two time zones away. So I, th I think we're going to see really an impact. A good friend of mine thinks that we've actually reached the apex of software engineering salaries on an inflation adjusted basis because of this globalization recognition combined with, of course, the fact you have code being written now by AI and things like that. So you have these multiple prongs. Now, people have been saying that for decades, that hasn't really come to pass. So maybe we're all wrong, but it does seem like it's getting more and more compelling and really hard to justify paying two, three, four times higher salaries to someone that, you know, or someone overseas is happy to do that. And with the collaboration tools we have and the support for remote work, uh, that seems like a logical choice. Yeah, I appreciate that insight into, into say, geographic hiring. And you have a unique perspective, multiple founder experience, investor experience. Uh, so the founders listening who are at the uh, same stage as you, where we're growing our product, we're early stage, early revenue, thinking about maybe pre-seed, seed, any, any lessons that you'd like to pass on through your experiences or as an investor? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's tons of things I can share. You know, one is I found a great website that I, I really like the founders called OpenVC, I think. And they're trying to build a database to help founders and VCs connect for free. And there's a lot of cool tools like that out there. But honestly, I'm, I'm a huge opponent of the spam and prey kind of model that many people advocate, particularly in the e-commerce and SaaS communities. They're like, oh, it's just a numbers game and it's blasting your message and here's a clever automated AI generated email you just blast out to random people. I'm the opposite. I'm like, I think that's dumb as a, as a, as an investor running in a fund and a small angel group. I hate that stuff and I ignore almost all of them. I think going through your network is the way to go. Like find people that have contacts in investor communities. If the LinkedIn is really powerful for this, you can get second and third order connections to many people. And if you're not, you know, a 17 year old kid trying to build something, if you've been in industry for a while and you're building a product and you really think you need venture money, tap your network, you know, find the people you know that know people in the investor community and ask them for introductions and explain to them what you're building. Give them an email that's nicely written that they can all just click a forward button and send it on to someone and leverage those contacts. And then whenever you have an introduction to someone, go in person every time, you know, both term sheets I got were pitches from people who said, oh, no, it's fine. We can do it virtually online. And I said, no, no, it's okay. I'll be there. And I went in person and I got a term sheet for both this round and last round. And I did a lot of other pitches that did not lead to term sheets. And it's not that I'm somehow a worse human in person remotely or online. It's just there's tremendous value in being next to someone, being there. And when you go in person, they bring the rest of their team. They're like, well, you know, hey, you're making the drive in like, Let's have some people, some associates and another partner come into the office and then you shake hands and they get to know you and they get a much better feel for who you are as a founder, um, which can really change the outcome. So yeah, for me, I'm, I'm the complete opposite of the spam and, spam and pray, 
all digital online. I'm, I'm the other way, like go as old school as you can, get in person, go face to face, shake hands, still know your stuff, right? The same concepts apply, but don't just try to hit numbers is my view. Yeah, I love that. So yeah, so I know Stefan over, so founders, if you'd like to check, it's openvc.app. And so where, yeah, he can connect and yeah, that is not a spray and pray where they review before they send off those submissions exactly. to investors. Yeah. So he's got a great platform if you'd like to find investors who are a good fit. So like you said, find those connections. And then what about there is, you know, when I interview founders, it seems like there is a lesson that comes up that, you know, maybe not sending a thousand emails, but it may take 50 conversations with investors to find that right fit. So that seems to come up a lot is like, don't just expect to, to call two investors and boom, you've got a term sheet, but it could oh, be yeah, 50 no, or a hundred. Yeah. View it like a sales pipeline is the best yeah. advice. saw. like build a forecast. You've got a, a pipeline and there's like initial messages, people that you're engaged with, people you're scheduling a pitch with, people that want to do follow-up, people who want to do a data room dive. You know, there's a whole process. But like I said, I think my, my, my win rate of people I went in person and presented, I think I'm like two for two. Like literally only had two VCs that I went to their office and gave them a pitch and both of them gave me a term sheet. Now, again, my case is unique. Your mileage may vary. Not everyone's going to yeah. have that experience. But I did dozens in both rounds. I did dozens of calls and phone calls and video calls online with people and virtually not. I think I'm one for 50 probably with the random online, you know, folks. And of course, that for like VCs, I did get angel investors and things that way. You're not going out in person for every angel check or angel group. But but yeah, definitely there is both the numbers game, but then there's also the the tremendous value if you can actually, you know, get that opportunity to present and really dig in deep with someone. Yeah, I love that. I appreciate that experience sharing that. And, and Jason, as we wrap up here, do you have a favorite number or metric that you're focused on right now to manage your business? Like over well, kind of yeah. So like, are you you know some founders are yeah like well, I'm really focused on ARM or number of customers or engagement with my product yeah. things like that. Yeah, for us, I think it, we are really focused on ARR. We're trying to get to you know raising the Series A is the next big milestone. So you know, I'm targeting kind of two million plus in ARR two to 3 million is that kind of sweet spot for the next round. So what do we need to do to scale from where we are today to there? But yeah, certainly, you know, no business I think can be managed off of a single metric. Typically there's many things that drive top line revenue, but we also are going to care about, you know, conversion rates and, you know, SEO feedback and customer, you know, engagements. And we'd like to do net promoter score and things like that. Like our customers happy, do they love the product? Are we getting out, you know, is our, our pipeline big enough, the things that feed into, you know, people hearing about us and then are we converting those and do they like us? And eventually we'll look at churn and are we retaining those customers? But yeah, for now where you're early, to me, it's really just about getting people on board. And if you're a pre-revenue company, then, then I say like number of engaged users, right? Look at monthly active users or things like that. What kind of feedback do you have a bunch of people that you could hand to a VC and say, without you involved, that they could go talk to them and that person's going to have glowing things to say about you and the product and the team. And if you do, then that's a good sign you're you're maybe ready to take the next step. And in just one quick question before we wrap up. So early revenue right now, looking to get the two to three million ARR for that series A. What what key components do you think uh you need to put in place to get there uh to hit that two to three million? Yeah, great question. 
Yeah. So we have a bunch of internal milestones. We're also going to be working on some patents. So there are some other things for that Series A. Uh, we want to have a second sport in early launch or show the early traction, at least with a second sport. And then, yeah, to get to the revenue targets, it's really about certain number of leagues and how many leagues per month we're signing up, how many AU programs, you know, how, how much SEO and, and online stuff we're doing. I talked to a PR firm this morning about, you know, just running campaigns, you know, because we've had great success when people hear what we're building and anyone who's into basketball and like, wow, I can get stats and highlight clips for everything I'm doing and stream games and get an app on my phone for a couple of dollars a person. Like, yeah, well, that's awesome. Where do I do that? But the big question is most people don't know we exist, right? So how do we raise awareness? And that's, and, and in today's inner information saturated environment where everybody's just bombarded with noise and advertising and sales, like running Google ads, isn't going to cut it exclusively, right? We need to sometimes get in front of someone and, and talk face to face. So do we send people out? Do we tap people's networks? How do we engage? Do we have affiliates and things like that, resellers. So we're really exploring my strategy right now is trying just a ton of different things and see what works, right? And collect data and say, okay, we spent this many dollars here. And this is the result we got. We spent this much here. So I'm going to try five, six, seven, eight, ten different go-to-market strategies from SEO to, you know, advertising to, you know, direct sales to referral to affiliates to whatever, and then see what works, right? And then we'll pour fuel onto the places that seem to be uh, productive and then hope that, you know, build those models out to show that we can get where we need to go. Yeah, I love that because based on your stage, really, it sounds like experimenting with go-to-market, experimenting with customer acquisition channels, what works, what doesn't work. And then, like you said, let's invest in those channels where we find some traction. So appreciate that, that insight. So Jason, uh, thanks for your time today, sharing your experience and insights. If listeners would like to learn more about Sports Physio, where should we send them online? Yeah, I mean, the website is probably the easiest way, sportsvisio.com. Uh, we're on all the social platforms, so Instagram. Twitter, you know, Facebook. I'm also on Twitter and, you know, I don't, I don't try, I try not to accept connection requests from people I don't know on LinkedIn, but always happy to on, on Twitter. And my email is just jason at sportsphysio.com. So folks want to reach out. And then Jason at 10XBP is my, you know, investor account. So folks who are looking on the angel investor side, always happy to talk. Yeah, appreciate that. So if you'd like to learn more, check out sportsphysio.com or email Jason directly. And hopefully you accept my LinkedIn connection request right before this. So, But Jason, really appreciate your time. Loved it. Great experience, uh, both as a founder and investor. So thanks for your time today. Thank you.